Well, thank you, church. You caught me by surprise there. The month is going to be over in a few days, and I thought you didn't remember. So, You guys are sweet. Thank you. We love you, too. Well, a couple uh, things I wanted to let you know about this exciting season of ministry for us as we make this transition to Impact Christian Church in just 10 weeks from today. 10 weeks from today will be October 6th where we do our official launch at our new location there, the Ralph H. Baker 21st Century Learning Center, brand new school on the corner of El Abado and Mojave Drive in Victorville. Uh, just yesterday, I jogged for about five miles around the school in the neighborhood there, and I was just praying over the neighborhood and praying over that school, and, and it's going to be really, really exciting. I want to thank all of you who signed up last week at our volunteer fair. Uh, thank you uh, for the dozens of you that said, yes, I want to help with some of these different areas. There were a few of those sign-up sheets and some key positions uh, that need some more volunteers right now, particularly in the area of prayer and pastoral care counseling on a Sunday morning for those that want to accept Christ, those that need prayer. So we've got those sign-up sheets in the lobby. Uh, just look for those balloons. Encourage a few more to sign up to help with prayer uh, or sharing your faith on a Sunday morning. Uh, we also need some volunteers in the music area, uh, some more instrumentalists and singers and those to help with our audio and our video ministries would be a huge blessing. If you could sign up, uh, that would be wonderful. We also need some host homes uh, for our home Bible studies. We're going to be calling those impact groups. And so if you want to open up your home uh, once a week for at least an eight-week period uh, for a small group Bible study, please sign up. Or if you'd like to lead one of those, the curriculum will be provided for you. Just let us know at that sign-up table, and we'd love to talk to you more about it. So I encourage you to check out some of those sign-up sheets in the fellowship hall. And then we've got something I'm pretty excited about also out there. You probably passed the tree on the way in and you were wondering, why do we have a Christmas tree in the lobby? Well, most of you are familiar with angel tree. At Christmas time, we've got those little paper angels hanging off the tree. You grab a paper angel and that has a child's name and a gift to provide for them. It's a child of a local prisoner and we buy that gift on behalf of their parent to give to their child on Christmas. Well, today we have teacher tree. I mentioned last week that we want to bless the teachers at the new school where our church is going to be meeting, and so we want to give them one of our new impact tumblers with some Starbucks and some Target and Walmart gift cards, along with some other little goodies to be kind of a teacher survival kit for the new school year. And so if you pull one of those tags off the tree, uh, just please bring that item back with you next week after church next Sunday. Uh, we'll go ahead and have a little stuffing party. We'll stuff about 70 of those water bottles with the gift cards and the little gifts and present them to the teachers before the first day of school. And so uh, we've got an added bonus for you today. Uh, if you grab one of those paper owls or, or caterpillars off the tree with one of those gifts, uh, we want you to take one of those impact tumblers. Those just came in this last week. It's a great-looking blue cup that looks a whole lot like this. Don't they look great? So uh, as a thank you, as a thank you for grabbing one of those tags, take one of these home with you. We do ask one per family so that we make sure we have plenty of these for our first-time visitors over the first few months of our new launch and also for those teachers. But make sure you take one for your family uh, if you grab one of those tags off of the tree. Amen? All right, you got your Bibles with you today? Okay, might find a few verses on the screen today, but it's no, ex no a replacement for having the Word of God in hand. So we're making our way through the book of Luke. We'll be in Luke chapter 12 today, starting in verse 1 in just a few moments. Uh, it was back in 1936 that the largest ship 
to ever cross the seas was commissioned and launched. And that was the Queen Mary. The Queen Mary in 1936 took to the high seas and it served for over four decades. For four decades and through one world war, the Queen Mary was back and forth, back and forth across the oceans, uh, hauling thousands and thousands of passengers and thousands and thousands of tons of cargo over that time. And finally, after four decades of service, as many of you know, the Queen Mary was decommissioned, and it was docked there in the bay at Long Beach and was transformed into a museum and a hotel. How many of you have visited the Queen Mary at some point? Probably most of us. And so as it was being uh, transferred into a a hotel and into uh, a tourist attraction and museum, they decided to take down the three steel smokestacks and to take them down and to repaint them and to remount them. But as they took those smokestacks down, they put them on the deck, and as they put them on the deck, those smokestacks crumbled into hundreds of pieces. And what they discovered was, back in 1936, these these, uh, smokestacks had been made out of three-quarter-inch steel. But by the time they went to refurbish them, there was nothing left but 30 layers of paint. The steel had completely rusted away. So when they put them on the dock of that ship, they crumbled into hundreds of pieces. The steel had rusted away. At the end of Luke 11, Jesus rebukes some Pharisees and scribes who were a lot like those smokestacks, weren't they? We saw that last week at the end of chapter 11. We saw that these Pharisees and these religious scribes in Israel uh, were painted all beautiful on the outside. To the crowds, to the community, they looked awesome. But the Bible says that God doesn't look at the outward appearance. He looks at the heart. And what God saw and what Jesus Christ saw was that on the inside, they were crumbling and wasting away. We have a word for that. It's called hypocrisy. They appear to be something on the outside that doesn't jive with what they are on the inside. Jesus wanted to make sure that his apostles were ready for the challenges they would soon face because Jesus knew he was down to a few months before he would hang on the cross. And just about 40 days after his resurrection, he would return to heaven. So the time was short. And Jesus knew that because the time was short, he had to make sure that his 12 apostles were prepared for what was coming down the pike. And one of those challenges they would face is the challenge to give in to hypocrisy. And so Jesus here at the top of chapter 12 is going to give four commands to his disciples in verses 1 through 12. Four commands that he is also going to give to us as his disciples today. Four commands for dangerous times to make sure that we don't fall into the path of hypocrisy. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your word. It is good, it is faithful, it is timely, it is relevant. I pray, O God, that you would open our minds and hearts today. Father, on any Sunday morning when a hundred or more people gather, there's probably a lot of different motivations for being in church that day. And so, Lord, I don't know why each person in this room is here today. But whatever may have brought us here, we pray that in this moment, Lord, we wouldn't squander the opportunity you're giving us to dive into your word and to hear you speak to us. Because, Lord Jesus, you are here. Your spirit is here in this room. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would speak to us through your word. 
And if we're distracted with our thoughts, Lord, if we're worried about what's coming tomorrow, I pray that you would quiet our minds and hearts and help us to listen to what you have to say. For your honor and glory. And all God's people said, Amen. Turn to the person next to you and say, Are you listening? Did they respond? If they didn't, they maybe, maybe they're not listening. So maybe say it again. Are you listening? Did they respond this time? All right. Well, we want to listen to God's Word today. Say amen if you're at Luke chapter 12. All right. Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 1. We'll take this just a few verses at a time. Let's look at the first three verses to start. Meanwhile, when a crowd of many thousands had gathered so that they were trampling on one another, Jesus began to speak. First to his disciples, saying, Be on guard. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What you have said in the dark will be heard in the the daylight. And what you have whispered in the ear in the inmost rooms will be proclaimed. From the roofs. May God bless us as we dive into these first few verses today. So it says here a crowd of many thousands had gathered. By many thousands, quite likely it means over 10,000 people likely were gathered on this occasion. And Jesus in these first three verses gives us the first of four commands for dangerous times, particularly in related particularly in relation to hypocrisy. And this first command goes like this. Be on your guard against hypocrisy. Be on your guard against hypocrisy. Now, I want you to remember that every verse in the Bible, God has placed there for a reason. And every phrase of every verse in God's Word is placed there for a reason. And so I find it kind of interesting that at the end of chapter 11, uh, Jesus is laying into those Pharisees and the scribes about their hypocrisy. And if you look at the second half of verse 1 of chapter 12, uh, Jesus says, Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. So I'm curious if Jesus is ending chapter 11 uh, with a long discussion about hypocrisy, and in the second half of verse 1 of chapter 12, he's tackling hypocrisy. What's the point of that opening half of verse 1 where Jesus is mentioning the size of the crowd? It doesn't seem to fit with this teaching about hypocrisy. It's a good question. Why is Luke finding this important for us to know? Well, I want you to write this down on those handouts from your bulletin. Liars lie through their words. Hypocrites lie through their behavior. Okay, would you say that with me? Liars lie through their words. Hypocrites lie through their behavior. That was very good, the ten of you that joined me. Now all of us. Liars lie through their words. Hypocrites lie through their behavior. I want you to let that sink in for a moment. I want you to try to imagine for a moment how Jesus' 12 apostles would have responded to a reporter. If the reporter had come to them on this very day, here at the start of chapter 12, and asked them this question, how were things going with Jesus' ministry? How were things going? I'm pretty sure the 12 apostles would have answered this way. I'm pretty sure they would have said, well, to be honest with you, 
the, the Pharisees and the religious leaders, they're, they're not big fans of Jesus. And, and Jesus has taken some real heat from those religious leaders. But on the positive side, look at the crowds. There's thousands of them. There's thousands of people coming from miles around to see Jesus because there's a lot of people who love Jesus. I think that's how they would have answered. But you know what? If that had been their answer, they would have only been half right. They were correct that the Pharisees weren't big fans of Jesus. They were correct that the religious leaders were giving him some real heat. We read that at the end of chapter 11. But they would be wrong about thousands of people loving Jesus. Because as we read through the Gospels, we find that the crowd was filled with thousands, but most of those came because they were interested in a dog and pony show. We've talked about this before. They came not because they were hungry to hear the teaching of truth that Jesus had to offer, They were not hungry for a relationship with Jesus. They were not hungry for Him to be their Lord and their Savior. They were not ready to repent from their sin and completely change their priorities and their lifestyle. They simply came to Jesus because they wanted something from Jesus. A very selfish want is what most of them had. And so these were not people who just loved Jesus. It was a large crowd most of whom came for their own reasons. So back to the question. What's the point of mentioning how big the crowd was in the first half of verse 1? And I think the answer is this. Jesus needed to warn his followers that the pull of hypocrisy was coming from two directions. The pull of hypocrisy was not simply coming from the Pharisees. It was also coming from the crowds. I love how Warren Wiersbe says this. He writes, Our Lord's disciples may not have realized it, but they were in great danger. The snare of popularity and the fear of man has brought ruin to more than one servant of God. So follow me on this. Liars lie with their words. Hypocrites lie with their behavior. So Jesus wanted to warn his disciples not to change their behavior out of fear of the religious leaders. Oh, no, the Pharisees are mad at me. Oh, no, they may kick me out of the synagogue, which, by the way, in those days was more severe than if someone gets kicked out of a church today. When you were kicked out of a synagogue in Israel, not only could you not go to church, you couldn't go to the marketplace and buy things. You couldn't do business in that town. You were basically cut off from Jewish society. And there would be this tendency, this this temptation to give in to the powers that be because they don't want to stir the pot. They don't want to be kicked out of the synagogue. They don't want to be looked down upon by those religious leaders. So I better just compromise a bit. Jesus knew there was going to be a pull of hypocrisy by trying to please the Pharisees. But on the other hand, they may not realize that there would be a pull toward hypocrisy by the crowd because there's this natural human tendency to look at a huge crowd who's coming to see us and say, man, I must be something great. And you know what? I better tone down the message that I'm preaching because I don't want people to to be chased off. I better water down the gospel because I'm kind of liking all of these big crowds. 
I better not speak the truth because people don't want to hear the truth. And so there would be a pull of hypocrisy from the religious powers because of fear, and there would also be a pull of hypocrisy from the crowds because of the alluring pull of popularity. Jesus wanted to warn his disciples not to change their behavior out of fear and not to change their behavior to please the crowd. The snare of popularity and the fear of man has brought ruin to more than one servant of God. Now, Jesus uses the metaphor of yeast in verse 1. Why does he talk about yeast? Well, yeast is an interesting fungus, isn't it? It's an interesting fungus. If you put just a a little bit of yeast inside a, a glob of dough and you put that dough over in a cool, dark place, guess what happens to that dough? That little bit of yeast works its way all the way through that batch of dough. It infiltrates the whole batch and will allow it to be able to rise when it's placed in the oven to bake. Yeast has this interesting quality. In general, yeast is not good or bad. It just serves as a wonderful metaphor for something that is gradual and unstoppable once it's introduced. You may or may not like the smell of popcorn in the microwave when you put it on for two minutes and not two and a half, right? Put it on a half minute too long, what happens? Woo! Whether you like the smell or not, it's just a reality. The smell of popcorn will fill the house. When one of my daughters does what they do so well, making their dad chocolate chip cookies, and I walk into the room after being at work or whatever, and I smell those chocolate chip cookies in the oven, it just fills the house, doesn't it? The smell of chocolate chip cookies. Sometimes you've eaten a bad burrito, and there's another smell that fills the house. I don't know anyone that likes that smell, But all that to say, certain things, be they good or bad, just have a tendency to fill the space, right? They fill the space. Burning rubber is one of those. It fills the space, no matter how large it is. And so leaven, the old-fashioned word, or yeast, as you find in most of your more recent translations, this yeast just fills the whole thing. And so it's not necessarily a bad metaphor, but we do find oftentimes in Scripture that God uses yeast to symbolize sin or the spread of perversion or corruption. And so it kind of goes like this. Corruption in your mind will eventually corrupt your behavior. Corruption in a single Christian will eventually corrupt the church. Corruption in San Francisco or in Hollywood or in Washington, D.C. will eventually corrupt the nation. And so Jesus warns us in Scripture, be careful about that leaven, be careful about that yeast of hypocrisy, because a little bit of it has a tendency to fill the whole space. Look again at verses 2 and 3. I want you to read those again with me. Starting in verse 2, Jesus says, There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed, or hidden that will not be made known. What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight. What you have whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed. From where? Will be proclaimed from the roofs. Well, how do these verses tie into Jesus' warning about hypocrisy? Well, I love how Chuck Swindoll explains that he writes, In the present world order, 
Secrets and dark corners conceal sin and give cover to evil intentions. When the kingdom of God comes, however, everything will be exposed to the light of the divine truth. All secrets will be revealed, every heart exposed to the open examination, all intentions presented for public scrutiny. If one lives the life of a phony, it will become known. That scares me a bit. We might be able to fool everyone else because our behavior on the outside is masquerading hypocrisy on the inside. But we never fool Jesus Christ. We may fool people now, but one day it will be revealed. Let those words sink in. If one lives the life of a phony, it will become known. Friends, I think one of the most honest and courageous things you could ever do is to look in the mirror, and as you're looking in the mirror, ask the question, are you a phony? Are you a hypocrite? One of the most honest prayers I think we could ever pray is to go to God just one-on-one in the quietness of our own prayer time, the quietness of our own devotion time, and ask God that same question, God, am I a phony? Am I a fake? Am I a sham? Am I a hypocrite? And if we're honest enough to ask ourselves and ask God that question, God will be honest enough to help us work through the answer. Command number one, be on your guard against hypocrisy. The second command we find in verses 4 through 7, picking up in verse 4, Jesus says, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after the killing of the body, has power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? But not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You are worth far more than many sparrows. Amen? Command number two, don't fear people. Fear God. Don't fear people. Fear God. These four verses are so, so important for us as growing Christians, to grasp and take to heart. In recent years, it's become very popular for Christians to say, uh, God does not want us to be afraid of Him. Uh, That word fear in Scripture can also be translated as respect or honor. So God doesn't want us to fear Him. Uh, God wants us to respect and honor Him. So let me ask you, is it true that God wants us to respect and to honor Him? Yeah, that's true, sure enough. But is it equally true that God also wants us to fear Him? And the answer is yes, absolutely. It's clear in Scripture, even one of the wisest men who ever lived, King Solomon, wrote in Proverbs 9.10 that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. He wasn't just pulling that out of the air because it sounded poetic. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's a starting point. A healthy parent-child relationship, I think, illustrates how important it is for us to have a healthy fear of God. If you think of the parent-child relationship, let me just be blunt with you. Show me a child who doesn't have a healthy fear of consequences from his parents if he rebels, and I will show you a child who's out of control. If that child does not have a healthy fear of consequences... 
that child is going to live an unruly life, isn't he? And so many parents will buy into some psychobabble and say, you know what, I'm just going to love on little Johnny. And I'll let his little free spirit express itself. Well, his little free spirit needs a swift swat on the hiney at times, doesn't it? And he needs a little bit of fear of mom and dad. Does that mean little Johnny should cower in fear because of mom and dad? Absolutely not. He needs a healthy fear of consequences when he crossed the line. The same is true in our relationship with God. We should have a healthy fear of God if we cross the line. When we don't have a fear of God, it's far too easy to say, "Ah, I sinned, no big deal, God will forgive me. And we're oblivious to the fact that on Judgment Day, many of us will make it into heaven because of the grace of God through Jesus Christ, but some of us will make it to heaven by the skin of our teeth because we lived this constant pattern of walking on the very edge between what is good and what is evil and pushing the limits over and over again. Oh, Jesus makes it so clear. We need to have a healthy fear of God. Jesus tells us in verse 4, My friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. Isn't this interesting? Do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. Some of us go through life being so afraid of people. And we have to ask the question, why? Why are we afraid of people? People can only hurt us temporarily, right? People can only hurt our bodies and maybe our feelings at times. But it's temporary. Jesus says that's ridiculous to fear people because in the grand scheme of eternity, our lives are like this big here on earth. Why are we fearing people during this tiny amount of time in the scope of eternity? Fear God because He has all of eternity in His control. We as Christians have an amazing heritage of those who have been persecuted and suffered and laid down their lives for the faith because they understood this principle. They understood that they are to fear God and not man. And we could go on for a long time listing the millions of Christians who have suffered and even died for their faith. Uh, Christians like James and, and Peter and Polycarp and William Tyndale. I mentioned him last week. He decided no matter what England told him, no matter what the Catholic Church told him, he was going to translate the Bible into English so everyday people could understand the Word of God. And he was burned at the stake for that. But praise God that he did not count this life as more precious than the life to come. When Paul's enemies threatened to kill him, Paul understood this well, didn't he? When Paul's enemies would threaten to kill him, he would say, that's okay with me, for me to die is gain. And then his enemies would come after him and say, well, if that's your attitude, then I'm going to make you live. I'm going to keep you alive. And Paul says, that's okay with me too, because for me to live is Christ. And then his his attackers are getting really frustrated. Well, if if you're content with dying and you're content with living, I'm not going to let you do either. I'm going to make you suffer, Paul. And he says, that's okay too, because I consider that my present suffering is not worth comparing with the glory that shall be revealed in me. Paul understood well. Whether he's living, whether he's dying, whether he's suffering, it's pretty much all the same to me because I've got this little life I'm living here on earth and I'm looking forward to eternity. I'm going to be there soon enough and I'm going to live for the one that is in charge of all eternity. I'm going to live for God. I'm going to serve God. I am going to fear God because ultimately in the grand scheme of things, what can man really do to me? 
Notice what Jesus says in verse 7. After mentioning that God cares for the scrawny little birds that sell for just pennies on the dollar in the meat market. Jesus says, indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than sparrows. Isn't this interesting? He says in the first few verses of this part of the passage, uh, fear God, not man. But then he says, do not be afraid. This seems a little schizophrenic. What's going on here? Well, notice what he says, don't be afraid of. Here's the best way I can boil this down. As we live out our fear of God by trusting God, And obeying God, we don't have to be afraid of anything, including God himself. Is that as clear as mud? As we live out our fear of God by trusting God and obeying God, we don't have to be afraid of anything, including God himself. What does that mean? Well, you see, fear of God keeps us in check so that we don't have to live in fear. Does that make sense? Fear of God keeps us in check so we don't have to fear anything at all. Try to wrap your mind around that one. You might think that these verses, verses 4 through 7, don't tie into Jesus' teaching about hypocrisy, but they actually do. I love how Warren Rearsby says it. He writes, A basic cause of hypocrisy is the fear of man. When we are afraid of what others may say about us or do to us, then we try to impress them in order to gain their approval. That makes sense, right? If we're afraid of what people may do to us, if we're trying to gain their approval so they don't criticize me, so they're not mean to me, so they don't fire me, we live as hypocrites, don't we? We alter, we change our behavior. We're not sincere with what's on the inside, with what we express on the outside. We change our behavior in order to please man. And that is hypocrisy, is it not? So when we live in fear of men, we try to gain their approval and we become hypocrites in the process. He goes on to write, the remedy for hypocrisy is to forget about what people may say and do and fear God alone. The fear of God is the fear that conquers all other fears for the person who truly fears God need fear nothing else. I love that. The person who fears God need fear nothing else. Else. So the next time someone says, are we supposed to be afraid of God? Answer, yes. And then explain what that means. We have a fear of God as a foundation for loving God, serving God, obeying God. And as we love and serve and obey God, guess what? As we love and serve and obey God, we don't need to fear anything. We don't need to fear man. We don't need to fear circumstances. We don't have to fear the bills coming in. We don't have to fear that eviction notice on our front door. We don't have to fear the cancer diagnosis. We don't have to fear the death of a loved one. We don't have to live in fear because as that foundation of the fear of God springs forth with a life of love and obedience and trust in God, we can live at peace. I love how John Knox a servant of God in the 1500s, when he was lowered down into the ground and being buried. At his funeral, someone eulogized John Knox by saying this, Here lies one who feared God so much that he never feared the face of man. You show someone that has, show me someone that has no fear of man, no fear of the circumstances they face, and I'll show you someone who fears God. Let's finish the passage with verses 8 through 12. First of all, verses 8 through 10, Jesus says, 
I tell you, whoever acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge him before the angels of God. But he who disowns me, he who disowns me before men, I will make sure he's disowned before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Third command in verses 8 through 10 here. Third command is this. Confess Christ openly, boldly, and often. Confess Christ openly, boldly, and often. When someone hears the gospel message and chooses to accept Jesus Christ, it's very common for us to share with them Romans 10, 9, and 10. It's part of the Romans road of sharing our faith with someone. Romans 10, 9, and 10 says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. It is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. In other words, without believing in Jesus, there is no salvation. Amen? Without believing in Jesus, there is no salvation. But if your belief is not followed by a confession of Christ with your mouth, there's no salvation either because if there is not unity and cohesion between your speaking and your heart's thoughts, that is not true faith, is it? So Paul says you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth. The two go hand in hand. Without believing in Jesus, there's no salvation. Without a willingness to speak up and proclaim Jesus, there's no salvation either. Or as Jesus puts it in Luke 12:9, he who disowns me before men will be disowned before the angels of God. Now, I don't know what you think, but I think that Jesus means what he says here. I think he means what he says. If you claim to have Jesus in your heart, but Jesus is never proclaimed from your mouth, then you really don't have Jesus in your heart, do you? If you say, yeah, he's in my heart, but you never proclaim him from your mouth, he's really not in your heart. Because the Word of God makes it clear that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The two go hand in hand. Now, I don't want to spend a lot of time answering the question of what blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is. But let me just say this. Many Bible scholars look at the teaching that Jesus gives about blaspheming the Holy Spirit being an unforgivable sin. And and many of them agree that this was a sin that is not repeated in modern times. It was a sin specific to when Jesus walked this earth. And when those Pharisees and teachers of the law heard Jesus, the Son of God, the Creator of the universe, speaking the truth, and when those Pharisees and the teachers of the law said, that is not God speaking, that is Satan speaking, taking Jesus and equating Him with Satan, taking His godly, pure, unadulterated motives and equating them with the motives and the behavior of Satan. Jesus seems to be saying that's unforgivable. So what we do know for us today, there's really only one unforgivable sin, and that's the sin of rejecting Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Jesus says in John 14:6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me, which means if you try to get to heaven through any other way besides Jesus, you will fail. That's ultimately the only sin that cannot be forgiven, the sin of rejecting your only way to heaven, who is Jesus Christ himself. Any other way is bound to fail. And ultimately, when you stand before God on judgment day, there will be one question that matters. What 
did you do with my son? What did you do with Jesus? If you reject him, there is no hope of eternal life for you. Command number three, confess Christ openly, boldly, and often. If Jesus is really in your heart, let him flow freely from your lips. Your family and your friends and your community desperately need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. And guess who Jesus commands to tell them about him? He tells you, doesn't he? Go and tell those in your circle of influence about Jesus Christ. Finally, command number four is in verses 11 and 12. Jesus says, When you are brought before the synagogues, the rulers, the authorities, do not worry about what you will say. Do not worry about how you will defend yourself and what you say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should do. Now, I know that when we take spiritual gift inventories, most of us are kind of crossing our fingers and hoping that our gift is not missionary or evangelism because I really don't want to go to Africa to live and share my faith day in and day out. That scares me half to death. I hope my, my gift isn't evangelism because it scares me to share my faith and knock on a door and, and begin a conversation with someone about Christ. It's uncomfortable for me to do that. Many Christians believe that. Be it good or bad, it's just a reality. Many Christians in America are afraid of evangelism. And so with command number three, when Jesus commands us, confess Christ openly and boldly and often, some of us are thinking, I don't know how to do that. It scares me to death to share my faith. I'm afraid I'm going to stumble all over my words. I'm afraid I'm going to mess it up. I'm afraid I'm, I'm going to chase someone further away from Christ instead of drawing them toward Christ. Jesus knew that we were going to be a little concerned, a little scared, a little worried about feeling inept to do this effectively. And so Jesus, with his fourth command, piggybacks off of his third command. Yes, I want you to confess Christ openly, boldly, and often. And catch this. Do not worry about how to confess Christ to others because the Holy Spirit will help you. Isn't that good? So we worry about how to do it. I don't know, do I use this model or, or this evangelism model? Do I do it today or tomorrow? And when that conversation comes, how do I start that conversation? How do I continue that conversation? How do I end that conversation? I just don't know. Well, we can give you some training of how to do that more effectively here at church. But ultimately, it comes down to this. When God gives you that opportunity, God will help give you the words. Amen? He'll help give you the words. Notice that Jesus uses the word when in verse 11. Not if. It's not a matter of if you and I will be criticized and persecuted for our faith in Christ. It's a matter of when. Some of us are, are so afraid of confrontation and criticism and slander that we never, ever bring up Jesus or heaven or church in our conversations with certain people. That's sad. We need to bring up Jesus to our family members and friends, at times even with those that don't want to hear it. We need to bring up church to our friends and family that need to hear about this good church where they can learn about Jesus Christ, get saved, and grow in their faith and serve Him. Amen? They need to hear about Jesus. They need to hear about heaven. They need to hear about this church. Don't you remember how exciting Jesus was to you when you gave your life to Him for the first time? Jesus is pretty amazing, isn't He? 
So if we really believe in these hearts of ours that Jesus is amazing, that amazing Jesus should naturally just spill out of our mouths. If we really believe that heaven is as amazing as the Word of God says it's going to be, where there's no more tears and there's no more sorrow and there's no more pain. Just yesterday afternoon I was over at Desert View Cemetery and I did a graveside service for a family that didn't have a pastor. And there they were lowering their loved one into the grave. And what a blessing it is to be able to share with them the hope that that loved one who had died of cancer and COPD, in heaven there is no cancer. In heaven there is no COPD. In heaven we don't have these frail bodies. In heaven we get to be with Almighty God forever and ever. What a blessing. If heaven really is that amazing, shouldn't that naturally just spill out of our mouths? If we believe that in our hearts? And if this church is as great as many of you believe this church is, and I believe this great church is in the process of becoming even greater, amen? This church that has some impact in our community is going to be carrying an even greater impact in our community. If this church is doing some of the great things that the pastor is talking about this church doing, then that should naturally spill out of our mouths in conversation. Maybe we all just now need to practice. Could you practice with me? Just do this. Go ahead. Don't spit on the person's head in front of you, but go ahead. That was most of you. Not not bad. That was better than when I asked you to read along with me earlier. It should naturally spill out. Why? Because what is in our heart and what comes out of our mouths go hand in hand. If we don't want to be hypocrites. Final question. Are you like the smokestacks on the Queen Mary? Mostly paint and very little substance. Our world especially in the United States of America, we are very, very good at painting the outside. Maybelline is doing a great job. Miss Clairol is doing a good job. Sephora is doing an amazing job. Lancome Paris and dozens of others, they're doing a wonderful job helping us paint the outside. But the Word of God is what transforms the inside. Because this Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, and it's the very Word of God that transforms us from the inside out. So God calls us to step away from hypocrisy. He commands us here in chapter 12 of Luke, number one, be on your guard against hypocrisy. Be on your guard against hypocrisy. Guard yourself from the temptation to cow-cow to the critics and the religious powers that be and the pull of popularity. Guard yourself against that. Be on your guard against hypocrisy. Number two, don't fear people. Fear God. Number three, confess Christ openly, boldly, and often. And number four, do not worry about how to confess Christ to others because the Holy Spirit will help you, church. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you. We thank you for sending Jesus, Father, to live a perfect life. The only one who has truly lived without an ounce or shred of hypocrisy in his life. Lord, I pray that you would help us 
to be sincere and honest Christians. Never pretending on the outside. But Lord, allowing our our beliefs in our hearts to pour forth from our lips. And to pour forth from our fingertips. God, here we are on the precipice of one of the most pivotal times in the, in the life and history of First Christian Church. And the easy part, oh God, is to say, uh, we're going to move and impact our community. That's the easy part, to talk about it. It's going to be a lot harder to do it. The easy part is to say we believe in our hearts that, Lord, you're calling us to do something more impactful in our community. The hard part is to go out and actually speak the word of Jesus Christ. The word of hope, the gospel to our community that desperately needs it. Father, I pray that we would put, in a sense, our money where our mouth is. And we would put our mouths where our heart is. We want all of these to be in line, hand in hand. Because, Lord, we want to be authentic, true, vibrant, sincere followers of Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, to be what you've called us to be. To eradicate hypocrisy from our lives. And to speak for you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's go ahead and be standing right now as our praise team comes up. If you're here today and you've never made that decision to put Jesus Christ, as I like to say often, in the driver's seat of your life, Today is a great day to do that.